Bibles to 1 John chapter 5, verses 16 uh, through 21. Let me go ahead and start reading that for us. 1 John chapter 5, verses 16 to 21. You need to listen carefully. This is a very difficult passage of Scripture. This is one a lot of people skip over because it's hard. And uh, since we don't skip any, uh, today you get one of the hard ones. So 1 John 5, starting at verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And we pray that you would give us understanding this morning. You would enlighten our minds to hear your word, to understand it, to know how to apply it, to know what to do with it. Help us to listen carefully. This is not an easy text. We ask your spirit to work powerfully among us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Most of you have heard of Samuel uh, Langhorn Clemens. He was born in Florida, Missouri in 1835. His family moved to Hannibal, Missouri, a port on the Mississippi River, when he was four years old, and there he received a public school education. He had an adventuresome youth. I know none of you can identify with that. Then in 1870, he married Olivia Langhorn and settled down in Hartford, Connecticut. He became an author, and he took the pen name Mark Twain. His most renowned works are The Adventures of Tom Sawyer and The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. And his writing style was punctuated with irreverent humor and a hatred of hypocrisy and oppression. Twain was not a Christian, nor was he a churchgoer. He didn't like some of the things that he saw in some churches, especially the love of money by some parishioners. And in September of 1871, he wrote a satirical work known as the Revised Catechism, reflecting what he believed most Christians actually thought. He used the questions of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which we still use today, but he came up with his own answers. Here's a couple of his questions. Question one, what is the chief end of man? Twain's answer was to get rich. In what way? Dishonestly if we can, honestly if we must. (laughs) Question two, who is God, the one and only true? And Twain's answer was money is God. Gold and greenbacks and stock, 
Father, Son, and ghosts of the same. Three persons in one. These are the true and only God, mighty and supreme. So you get the picture of Mark Twain's catechism. And we would love to say that Twain had it all wrong. No Christian would ever think like that. And yes, Twain was wrong, but he wasn't entirely wrong. Because the history of Christianity in America is full of people who fit Twain's description. After all, you want your best life now, don't you? It's a title of a book out that I'm not fond of. There's a new history that was written, came out this summer, on the interaction of theology and culture in the time of Mark Twain's America. And the title of this book was striking. The name of the book is Friends of the Unrighteous Mammon, Northern Christians and Market Capitalism, 1815 to 1860, by a man named Stuart Davenport. And in the book, Dr. Davenport, it's an academic book. It's not a, for popular reading. And, uh, but he's trying to answer the question, what did Protestants think about capitalism? What did Protestants in America think about capitalism when capitalism was first something to think about? And I think his title gives us his answer. Friends of the Unrighteous Mammon, which is a pretty damning title. And it certainly appears that in Mark Twain's time, there's a tremendous amount of confusion in the church. People didn't know what to believe. They didn't know who to believe. They didn't know why they should believe. And so they went after all sorts of false teaching. And apparently many of them became friends of the unrighteous mammon. Sure glad that doesn't happen anymore. Of course it does. Richard John Newhouse, a cultural critic, editor of the respected journal First Things, has a book coming out early next year entitled American Babylon, Notes of a Christian Exile. He published an excerpt of it, and in it he writes, uh, After his visit to this country in the early 1930s, G.K. Chesterton famously remarked that America is a nation with the soul of a church. That quote has often incorrectly been attributed to Alexei de Tocqueville. Uh, he did not, in fact, say that, even though President Reagan said that he did. Uh, that quote comes from G.K. Chesterton. And, uh, but the remark is both famous and true. And even this past April, when uh, Pope Benedict came to America, he called religion the soul of the American nation. I don't think he picked that up from Chesterton. He might have. He's widely read. And a peculiarity of the American Christian experience is we think like we're the only ones. We've sort of disconnected our experience from all of Christianity that went before us. And uh, so for many American Protestant thinkers, America became the church. And that was true then, and for many people it's true now. However, there are other theologians today depict America not as the church. They depict America not as the precursor of the New Jerusalem, but as Babylon. 
And of course, America is also exactly that in the sense that every place is a place of exile for those whose true home is the city of God. So whether America is uh, depicted as the anticipation of the new Jerusalem, the most godly place, or it's depicted as Babylon, the most ungodly place, whether America is the precursor to the city of God or the enemy of the city of God, what all those thinkers have in common is the lack of a connection to the church and continuity with a Christian story throughout history. It's not enough for America to have the soul of a church. It's a particularly American Protestant trait to forget that the Bible says the church is not the soul of Christ, but the body of Christ. And with this in mind, we then get confronted with a a third argument, another literary and cultural critic, a man named Harold Bloom. He writes, the American religion is Gnosticism. And why does Harold Bloom, who's the Sterling Professor of the Humanities at Yale University, say that the American religion is Gnosticism? He says, because we've separated the Christian life from the physical life and we're only interested in spiritual things. Why is that Gnostic? Well, we begin by saying it fails to rempl- uh, 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 fails to recognize the full implication of the incarnation. In Jesus Christ, God identifies with the whole of creation by taking on flesh, by becoming a person with a real-life physical body, by entering the broken and limited uh, experience of being human. And the gospel of Jesus Christ fully comes to term with God's identification with matter, with stuff. And Gnostic Christianity has reduced the gospel to being just about spiritual things. Removed from the messy realities of this present age and real physical life. And in fact, Gnosticism would say that our belief in such things as matter and time and place are incidental, if not actually evil. Freedom is found in transcending such real things Uh, with spirituality that's attuned to some special religious knowledge or some special religious experience. Now, Harold Bloom also says that American religious Gnosticism, what he calls the state religion of our country, goes hand in hand with ecclesiological doceticism. Now, what does that mean? Doceticism... It's an early Christian heresy that Christ only seemed to be human. He wasn't really a man. He only seemed to have suffered and died on the cross. And so Harold Bloom says the church is like that, sort of the reverse, is that we have physical life, but we have no spiritual life. Again, there's a division between the physical and the spiritual. Now, why is all that important to 1 John? What are the two heresies the Apostle John is battling when he wrote this letter? Gnosticism and doceticism. That's why he wrote the letter. And both are alive and well in various forms today. We spent 16 weeks now reading John's warning about false teachers who say you have to have some religious, special religious knowledge. You have to have some special religious experience. 
and apparently from the Apostle John uh, to Mark Twain in the 19th century to Harold Bloom in the 20th century to Richard John Newhouse writing this month, nothing's changed. Our country is still full of people who say you have to have special religious knowledge and you have to have a special religious experience. And what John is trying to say with that long and complicated introduction, what I've been saying, what John says here is very simple. If it takes anything other than Jesus to make you a Christian, it's idolatry. If it's Jesus plus some special religious knowledge, it's idolatry. If it's Jesus plus some special religious experience, it's idolatry. If it's Jesus plus some special prosperity, then you really don't have Jesus at all. It's just idolatry. And I brought in all those other authors because they're saying the same stuff that John's saying. They're saying in very academic words that we suffer from the same problems the church in Ephesus suffered from in the first century. We're just more sophisticated about it and we use much bigger words. Idolatry is anything that steals our hearts away from God. St. Augustine said, idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used and using anything that's meant to be worshiped. I thought that was a pretty good definition. Worshiping anything that ought to be used and using anything meant to be worshiped. And I imagine that when that struggling church in Ephesus... And when they got this letter from John the Elder, the last living apostle, they're dealing with a lot of nonsense, just like we are today. And in today's passage, he's writing to them and to us. And he's writing about the power of sin as seen in idolatry and the power of Christ as seen in our prayers, which is why we pray. So we need to learn from him because we're in a very similar situation. Today we're starting at chapter 5, starting at verse 16. And John starts by telling us that we need wisdom in praying. Starting in verse 16, wisdom in praying, that should be the first blank in your outline. He says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To... To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Now notice here that John does not say, if anyone sees his brother sinning, go tell the pastor so he can deal with it. It's not here. He doesn't say, if anyone sees his brother sinning, call up all your friends and tell them about it so they can pray which is just a thin spiritual cover for gossip. He doesn't say, if anyone sees his brother sinning, you should shake your head in disgust and say, how could he do that? That's called judging your brother. Rather, he says, if you see a brother sinning, pray for God to give life to him. While we're all responsible for our own sins, only God can truly deliver us from sin because only God can impart life. 
So we're dependent on God to deliver. But at the same time, the sinning brother is responsible to turn from his sin, take the necessary steps not to fall into it again. And so what we see is before we speak to that brother about his sin, we need to speak to God about that brother. When you see a brother sinning, your first response should be to pray for that person. Now, all of 1 John deals with tests of life, and we've been talking about that for a few months now. Tests designed to give assurance of salvation to believers and expose those who are not really believers. And the fact that one uh, is a believer or is not a believer is not usually obvious. We don't often know. God doesn't put it on our forehead. You know, she's in, he's out, that kind of thing. You don't know. But continuing in the truth is a test which ultimately will reflect the validity of that person's profession of faith. And in the preceding verses, the ones we looked at uh, two weeks ago, John speaks about prayer and confidence that someone can have concerning the acceptance of their prayer before God and the granting of that request. Let me read those verses. 1 John five fourteen and 15. This is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. And so now in verses 16 and 17 he's giving us a specific example. An illustration and a limitation within which the prayer of the Christian can be kindly and effectively employed in rescuing a brother from spiritual harm, from spiritual death. It's a case where one comes to the throne of God in prayer, the standing of his brother is immediately brought into focus. But there's a limitation here, too. John says, I have no idea why, but he says, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Now, what does that mean? This is one of the hardest verses in the Bible to understand. Various attempts at resolving the difficulties regarding the character of that sin have been made. There's many interpretations of what does that verse mean. I'm going to talk about a few of them here. Obviously, most common is the Roman Catholic Church maintains that the sin that leads to death is a mortal sin compared with the less significant sin, which are called venial sins. And though the designations are not mentioned in Scripture, it's asserted that uh, the two types of sin are clearly affirmed in Scripture. And mortal sins generally are those that keep you out of the kingdom of God, and venial sins are those that don't. And the New Testament does teach that sins differ in magnitude and consequence in this life. Nevertheless, holding this interpretation that the Catholic Church has poses some difficulties. First, the definition of venial and mortal is pretty vague. It's very imprecise. It really destroys any distinction between the two. Secondly, Scripture teaches every offense is deadly and subject to the claims of divine justice. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. It doesn't distinguish. On the other hand, the Bible also declares that no sin is so great to be on the power of God's ability to forgive. 
And it's easy to show the scriptures are not referring to specific sinful acts when it speaks of the sin that leads to death. I mean, if you think about it, David committed uh, naked adultery and the most brutal and despicable of murders, and yet he was forgiven. Acts 13 says he was a man after God's own heart. Peter betrayed the Lord with curses and yet became the first among the apostles. Paul, before he was a Christian, organized and actively participated in the persecution and murder of Christians, and yet he became an apostle, first great missionary. There was a man in the Corinthian church who lived in an incestuous relationship after becoming a Christian, and yet upon his repentance was forgiven and restored. So clearly, just picking out the big sins, the spectacular sins, aren't going to cut it here. Another view, as some uh, other authors have suggested, this refers to total apostasy, just a flat-out renunciation of the faith, a deliberate rejection of Christ and his claims. The major difficulty with that view is that the Scripture nowhere teaches that someone who is a genuinely regenerate believer can become apostate. In his gospel, John says the believer is secure. John 10, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father, these words of Jesus, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So we would say those who became apostate were never really true believers in the first place. Third view says, well, this must be the unpardonable sin. Jesus mentions in Matthew 12, willfully rejecting the testimony of the Holy Spirit. And it's possible, but it also has problems. Passage does not connect itself in any way with Matthew 12 or with the unpardonable sin. And it contains no evidence that that connection was intended. Second, the one who commits the unpardonable sin would not have been considered a brother in the local fellowship. A willful and deliberate rejection of the work of the Holy Spirit, as described in Matthew 12, is, would be really difficult to hide, to disguise. If you're guilty of that, you wouldn't be accepted as a brother. Open antagonism to the gospel can't be masked and go unnoticed uh, by others in the fellowship. And what's more, some of the worst sins in Scripture are sins far more polite than murder and adultery. The Pharisees were moral people. They were religiously zealous. They weren't adulterers. They weren't murderers. But it was to them that Jesus issued this warning in Matthew 12 about a sin against the Holy Spirit that couldn't be forgiven. They weren't out committing all the big spectacular sins. So it's probably not that. Fourth possibility on this very difficult verse is the sin leads to death refers to one who persists in committing sin. He habitually practices sin to the extent that his character and lifestyle ultimately show others within the local body of believers that he's not a believer. And the main theme of 1 John supports this. So the true believer does not habitually practice sin. We see it first John two one. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. 
If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 1 John 3, 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. 1 John 3, 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. I believe that was your passage, Mark, wasn't it? You were just so grateful I assigned that to you. I remember that. Called me up and said, have you read this passage? I love you. But the immediate context of all of 1 John, and particularly of 1 John 5, supports this conclusion. And you can find it elsewhere in the Bible. Paul talks about it in Galatians 5 and 6 and in Romans 6. And although there's occasional sins, the believer's life is not characterized by sin as a lifestyle. So I think the best explanation for the sin that leads to death is one that refers to the habitual and continual sinning of one who professes Christ but doesn't actually possess Christ. And if you remember, I said that's the problem in Ephesus that Paul's writing to. You got teachers there who profess Christ but don't possess Christ. This is referring to the false teacher, the one who's leading others astray, the one that John is warning us about. And if that's the case, then we're being told to focus our prayers on all the people who are being led astray, on all those who are starting to follow these false teachers. But John doesn't just address the issue of having wisdom in praying. He takes on the Gnostics directly and tells us that we need wisdom in knowing. Wisdom and knowing. That's the second blank in your outline. Starting at verse 18. We know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Verse 19. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. John's writing against people who claim that you need special secret knowledge to be a Christian. And so he's going overboard and telling us that we already know what we need to know. There is no secret, hidden, special knowledge. John uses the word no 36 times in this short book. And these three verses, he uses it four times. Why is John beating this point to death? Remember the context. He's arguing against Gnostics who distinguish between the body and the spirit. And they claim that for them, not for you, but for them, if you have, uh, they have this special knowledge, their sin doesn't count. I can sin. It doesn't count. I had the special experience. I had the special knowledge. If you don't have the special knowledge, if you didn't get the experience, too bad, so sad, your sin counts. Mine doesn't. And the church was confused. If you confronted these false teachers with frequenting prostitutes, they would say, hey, that was just my body. My spirit isn't tainted by that. It's still pure. And the Apostle John is saying, that's nonsense. 
If this special knowledge leads you into a sinful lifestyle, then you don't want it. It can't be true, and it's not good. 1 John, go back to 1 John chapter 3, verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. In verse 9, remember, John doesn't mince words. He's a sort of a plain-spoken, straight-talking kind of guy. And in verse 19, he describes the whole world as lying in the power of the evil one. The picture is not of frantic captives desperately trying to escape their depraved tyrant. Rather, the picture is one of people who are staying there voluntarily, quietly and content, oblivious to their tragic plight. They wear their life is good t-shirts, oblivious to that they're sleeping uh, peacefully in the arms of an evil one who will destroy them. And the God of the world has, of this world has blinded their mind. Second Corinthians 4, 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And in contrast to the world, believers are of God. This means that Christ is the one who, Galatians 1, 4, gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. According to the will of our God and Father. And according to Colossians 1, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And John finishes by saying that we know that. He's given us understanding. We know that Christ is the true God. This matches what John's been saying all along. If you put these uh, 16 weeks of 1 John with the 72 weeks of the Gospel of John, that gives you almost 90 weeks of John telling us the same thing. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father. John seventeen three. This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. If you don't understand, if you didn't get that message, then I wasted 90 weeks of John. Ultimately, it comes down to knowing Jesus. John's told us three things here. He said, no one who's born of God lives in sin. We're of God in contrast to the world that lies in Satan's power. And the Son of God has come and he's given us understanding to know him. And it's very complicated, very difficult uh, verses there. And then John throws us a fastball. We've had a couple of curveballs. Hard to understand, hard to hit. But now it's the bottom of the ninth. Two out, full count, and you know you're getting the heater. Except now it's Bobby Jenks on the mound. It's coming at 103 miles an hour from 60 feet away. Good luck with that. Because now the Apostle John tells us that we need wisdom in believing. Wisdom in believing. Verse 21, little children... Keep yourselves from idols. Up to now, John's been taking on the false teachers. It's been kind of easy. He's attacking those guys. And now he turns his attention to the rest of us. Now, this warning may have had a special application in Ephesus where John sent the letter. 
The temple of Diana was there. The silversmiths made a good living making statues of this little pagan goddess. You can read about that in Acts 19. And if you travel today pretty much anywhere in the Middle East or the Far East or in uh, tribal areas, you'll see shrines to idols. But Americans, it would seem, don't have much of a problem with bowing down before statues of imagined gods. That's not really the case, is it? Our statues of imagined gods just have different names like Sony or Apple or Lexus. Maybe the imagined part could be something like a 30-year fixed at 4% or a fully funded Roth IRA or a substantial 528 plan or a targeted retirement plan that shows an annual ROI of 10%. And if you don't know what any of those things are, I'll just assume they're not your idols. But in the most basic sense... An idol is anything that takes the rightful place of God in your life. Some of the Apostle Paul's harshest words uh, for idolatry were about covetousness or greed. Ephesians 5, he says, You may be sure of this, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom. Colossians 3, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Your career, your pursuit of money, your hold on possessions, your excessive devotion to sports, even putting any human relationship, child, parent, spouse, above your relationship with God, they can all become Idols, putting your intellect above God's revelation, it's idolatry. Playing hours of computer games, having no time to spend with God, no time to serve him, is idolatry. I hope I haven't left anyone out. I can go back. I tried to pick things I thought would pretty much cover all of us. At the root of all these is the idol of self. I'm not yielding my life Uh, to the true God. I want my will. I want my way. I'm going to use God to get what I want. And if my God delivers, then I'll set him back on the shelf to the next time I need something, and then I'll use him again. And if he doesn't deliver, I'll shop around for a better God who will get me what I want. The idolater doesn't submit to the living and true God. And I think of fear that many people who claim to be, quote, born-again Christians are only trying to use God to get happiness or to get peace, even to get your best life now. If he brings trials, if he brings suffering, if he brings hardship or disappointment, then we go look for a new God. And that's idolatry. John tells us to guard ourselves from idols, which implies that we have something valuable that the enemy's trying to steal. The great preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon uh, pointed out, if you have a box and you're not sure what's in it, you won't be very careful about guarding it. But if you know it contains a rare and valuable treasure, you'll be diligent to guard it carefully. And John is saying, if you know the true God and his son, Jesus Christ, you have a treasure. 
Guard it so you don't drift off in one of those many forms of idolatry. And so John ends his first, his first letter. And they are the last words of a faithful shepherd. The last words of a faithful shepherd. In our office, right next to the copy machine, we have a picture of a shepherd standing among some sheep on the wall of our church office. And you kind of think it's Jesus, but you're not sure because his back is turned. And they never showed me a picture of his back on those flannel graphs in Sunday school when I was growing up, you know, so I'm not quite sure. But I find myself, I keep looking at that picture because more and more I come to think of 1 John as a shepherd's book. You know, I've said a number of times, John was an old man when he wrote this. He was older than Jerry. (laughs) He was really old. But he was as wise as Jerry, so that's a good thing. He's the last of the apostles. He's the final one uh, who had known Jesus. And he'd been specially commissioned by the Lord to care for the church and to write the scriptures. And John did the work of a shepherd. Shepherding's hard and dangerous business. Do you remember uh, what David said when uh, Goliath came, was taunting the armies of Israel? And one of my favorite stories of David and Goliath. I love the, the good David stories. And not so much the bad David stories, but this is one of my favorites. And Saul called him in because David said, you know, I'll take on Goliath. And he was just like a punk kid. And they had all these great warriors there. And Saul said, what are you talking about? First Samuel 17, Saul said to David, you're not able to go out against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. who was a shepherd. And he said, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. That's a great passage. I love that passage. Shepherding means to take risks for the sake of the sheep, to endanger oneself, to take the enemy seriously. And there's a serious heresy threatening the church to which John is writing. There's those who become enemies of the people of God and enemies of the gospel, and they're telling lies and threatening the sheep. And John engaged them directly in this book. He did the hard work of a shepherd to tell the truth in the face of error. And comes the final verse of the shepherd. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And I think what John is doing at the very end is acknowledging, you know, most sheep fall in trouble uh, in stages. We don't often get taken off by the lion or the bear, the very first thing. What usually happens is we compromise. You know, a little bit of faithlessness Seek some minor help from that which is not God, such as luck or a good luck charm. You know, the ancient world is filled with idols. When Paul walked into Athens, he said the city was overwhelming with its idols. 
Remember in Ephesus, Demetrius, the silversmith, led a whole guild of people in making little figurines of Diana and selling them. And there were gods and goddesses and incense burners and scarabs and all kinds of things that people could carry around in their pocket and hang around their neck or stick on their doorpost. And there were little gyrations that they could go through and burning all kinds of things just for luck, just as an additional way to promote their best interest. And John is saying, don't play around with that junk. Don't play around with faithlessness. Don't give in to the little ways in which you can be persuaded that something other than the Lord is going to meet your needs. To continue with the analogy of the shepherd uh, with the sheep in the long run, It's the little birds that get under your skin, the insects that fly in your face, the small ditch that you stumble into. And those things become just as dangerous as the lion and the bear. And the good shepherd has to be concerned that we don't ever start down the path that's going to lead to our destruction. And so that's the end of the story. The good shepherd ends with a warning. Little children, keep yourselves from idol. This shepherd who cares enough to talk about the important things, who cares enough to challenge what's wrong, who speaks in loving terms and in hard terms, who holds high the truth and makes sure that we know what the source of our hope is, ends this book in a great way. Don't compromise. Know what you believe, know who you believe in, know why you believe it, and then stick to it. And in this is life. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Heavenly Father, we're so easily led astray. We so easily chase after other things that don't give us any life. We create idols in what we do and what we have and what we want. And we forget to look to you. And Lord, this morning I would pray for each one of us here that you would just simply enable us to look at you, to learn more about you, And not to look at our own selfishness first. If we don't know much about you, that we'll start to learn about you. If we do think we know a lot about you, show us that we don't know nearly as much as we think we do. And Lord, work in us. So wherever we're at, we look to you. And we ask that you would do this for us and in us. And sometimes in spite of us, in Jesus' name, amen.